open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians once again, chapter 1. We have taken and tried to run a bit of a thread through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians in these past uh, few weeks as we have looked at uh, what we've called the, the five solas of the Reformation, uh, five foundational and five essential formative principles uh, to life uh, in the church. Uh, we began talking about Scripture alone. That is that we believe the Word of God is the final authority in the church and that is it is sufficient. I've said many times uh, as, as Baptists declared the, the uh, inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, and those are good things to say. We believe those things. But I fear the thing that may divide us is do we believe that the Word of God is sufficient to accomplish God's purpose in an unbelieving world and in a believing church. And so, again, we stand by the Reformation principle, the biblical principle, sola scriptura. And then we lump together the truth that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. And just as with Scripture alone, there's an alone to be added to each of those phrases. That is, that salvation is apart from any contribution that we would make. It is by grace alone. That it is through faith alone that we rest in the truth that Jesus Christ is our sole hope for eternal salvation. And so we believe those things. We believe that therein is the gospel, the good news for a lost world, that there is salvation given as a free gift to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And all of these things are true, and, and in some sense they're summed up in this, this final slogan from the Reformation, sola deo glory, to God be the glory alone. So much of what we sang today was the truth about a God who is glorious and He rightly deserves our devotion, our praise. He deserves to hear from those whom He has redeemed that He is great, that He is good, that He is holy. And He, he is and He was and He will be forever. And so we believe that it is biblical to live for or to the glory of God alone. Now, that's big. That, that's, that's weighty. But I want you to see as we get to the end of this message today that it is one of the most freeing principles that you can ever grasp. That you indeed can live your life with great purpose and great meaning as you live it for the glory of God. And so if you will, look at our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 14. As Paul is quite concerned in this opening that we understand that our salvation is God's work, God's work alone, and he extends this salvation and applies this salvation to us so that we would praise him for his glorious reality, his glorious existence, and his glorious work in us who believe. Again, Ephesians 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Pray with me. And Father, once again, we thank you for your grace, for your truth, for this revelation of yourself. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word in this moment. And God, that we would glorify you, Lord, and that, that ultimately you would apply your truth to our hearts and minds, that we may live freely and we may live to your glory alone. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you realize that what I just read is in the Greek one sentence. And thankfully for those who translate into English, they chopped it up for us just a bit. And yet still, it's quite a mouthful. Paul says a lot about the reality of salvation. This letter written to a church there on the uh, peninsula of Turkey, um, ancient Ephesus, and he wants them to understand the greatness of their salvation. Maybe if I could say one thing that I would like to accomplish in this work of ministry is that the people to whom I minister would come to understand the greatness of their salvation. Let me tell you something. Everything about the church would be remedied if you understood just how great your salvation is. You would worship Him. You would serve Him. You would go out into the world and tell others about Him. It would all be resolved. And I think many times we, we tend to downplay this great work on the cross for us and this great work in us through the ministry of God's Holy Spirit. And so Paul says this, that, that God is to be blessed because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You know, that at one verse has always stymied me a little bit. I know y'all think I know everything about the Bible, and I'm going to continue to let you think that, okay? Uh, but the reality is I, that I don't. And uh, Timothy George was speaking years ago back when I was at Philadelphia Baptist Church, and I, I stumped him. 
he came out of the pulpit. He was doing something like we're doing here today. We had a special celebration day. And I said, Dean George, can you kind of explain verse 3? And, you know, he kind of looked, gave me that deer in the headlights look. You know, it, it's hard to fathom. But yet, our possessions right now, our, in our possession right now, not the full experience of it, but our possession is all of the riches that belong to Jesus Christ. And it, it is stored for us that we will fully enjoy it forever one day. And here's the goal of the Christian life, to enjoy it as much as possible right now. To enjoy much of the greatness of God right now, before you go to heaven. And so Paul expresses uh, that a great blessing, a great word of praise, and he reminds us, God chose us. Now, we sing a song occasionally. I've decided to follow Jesus. Did you decide to follow Jesus? Yes, you did. But let me tell you what. God chose you first. Before you chose him, he chose Before you chose him, he chose you. Okay? That's just biblical reality that that he so worked in us that we would believe. And his purpose is that we would be holy and blameless. And again, a a holiness that, that breaks in now. One day we'll be perfected in our holiness. Now, y'all don't know this about me, but I know this about you. Y'all ain't perfectly holy. And I'm going to confess to you I'm not either. Okay, now I know another shock. That's two shockers in one sermon. Okay? But, um, but again, we grow in our holiness as God works in us. He predestined us. In his son, Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 6. Why did he do this? He didn't have anything else to do. He's just sitting up there at heaven kind of, you know. Hey, guys, what are we going to do? No. He does it to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, Scripture tells us that, that, that the angels look at what God is doing in saving sinners, and they marvel. They marvel. At this great work of redemption, we, we, we see the, the work of, 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 of God in, in the created world, and it is spectacular, and I'll say more about that in just a moment. But these angels that have been observing the work of God for thousands of years, they look at His work on the cross and the work in the hearts of unbelievers to make them believers, and they are astounded that these people who are by nature haters of God fall completely and madly in love with Him. And even in this world, they begin to worship Him and they praise Him and they serve Him and they devote their lives to Him. And they're going, what's up with that? Wow, God is to be praised for his salvation. He has redeemed us from this slave market of sin. And notice verse 8, he lavished upon us. Salvation is not a stingy thing. God has given magnificently to your salvation that is according to his purpose. What purpose? That we would praise him. And that one day all things will be under His the perfection of his reign. Now, hear me. All things are under God's reign right now. Okay, he's sovereign. But there will be a different day when there will be nothing that works in opposition to God. That all things will be perfectly in submission uh, to him. And so once again, verse 11, Paul comes back. That because God has chosen us, he's predestined us according to, to what? According to the counsel of his own will. And that all things are working according to this same will. Why? 
So we praise him. One of the things about having a very high view of God's sovereign work in salvation is that it removes any obstacle, namely me, you, it removes any obstacle for us to praise him for our salvation. As long as you think you made a, a contribution that merits salvation in any shape, form, or fashion, it will hinder your worship. But when you understand that it's God and God alone, you'll praise him. You'll praise him. And so, again, Paul comes back. Why does he do this? Because he deserves to be praised. And so let's look here this morning. The first thing I would say is that God is glorious. The, the Hebrew kavod is the idea of weighty. That, that when we think about materials such as gold or silver, its value is largely defined by its weightiness. And God is weighty. He is glorious. In fact, if he were to unveil his glory in this room today, we would all disintegrate into nothing. One day we will see fully his glory because we will have be transformed so that we will be like him and we can see him as he is. But right now, we can't. And so he is perfect in his being. If, if God did nothing, and God does everything, but if God did nothing, he would still be great and he would still be glorious just because of who he is. In, in the essence of his being, he is glorious. And so it is right for God to be jealous. God says of himself, that I'm a jealous God, and I will not allow you to have any other gods before me. We kind of look back this morning. We talked about some of the things going on in uh, Romania, some of the things going on in, in Guatemala, and we can look back in the ancient world and, and kind of, you know, how could they ever worship an idol? But let me tell you something. The United States of America is just as idolatrous as any heathen nation has ever been. Our idols of materialism, our idols of wealth, our idols of prosperity, our idol, our idol of happiness in a temporal, superficial sense. And so, again, it is right for God to insist that he be God and God alone. That's why Jesus can speak in this very enigmatic fashion. And, and you need to let it settle on you that, that no man may be my disciple unless he does what? Hate his father and mother. Why? Because I'm a jealous Lord. I will not allow you to have competing affections. You will serve me and me alone. All by God's grace. Why do we love him supremely? Because he worked in us, not because we figured it out. Not because we in some way have superior affections. Because he worked in us to will and work according to his good purpose. And so it's right for God to be jealous. It is right for God to be wrathful about all that is in opposition to him. Again, we, we have a very high discomfort level with the idea of a God who is wrathful. But let me tell you this. God's grace means essentially nothing if God is not wrathful regarding that which stands in opposition to him. Jesus has delivered us from the sure and certain wrath to come. And so we praise him for that. We're not liable for a wrath beyond our comprehension, which each and every one of us deserve because of our sinful rebellion. And so God is glorious just in his being, just by being there, just because he exists, he's glorious. He's glorious in his attributes. He's glorious in his holiness. Y'all know that one of my favorite passages is Isaiah 6, where we find the angelic creatures chanting, holy, holy, holy. 
in the in the Hebrew, the way to say the holiest, used the grammatically superlative, is to is by repeating it. And so repeating it three times, they're saying, God, you are perfectly holy. There is no one else like you. You are without any type of defect. There is nothing that anyone could ever indict you for. And so God is glorious in the perfection of his holiness. He is glorious in his love. As human beings, we love the lovely primarily. We have a hard time loving the unlovely. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the really nice folks, the purdy ones. He died for the ungodly. He died for the unlovely. And so God is glorious in the magnitude and the accomplishment of his love. He's glorious in his sovereignty. In Isaiah chapter 46, God declares that I'm the Lord and there's none other like me. I'm holy. I'm distinct. I'm separate. I'm the only one in my category. And I declare the end from the beginning. Or as Paul would say, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. There, there is nothing beyond the sovereignty of God. And folks, I get it. I can think of two great enigmas when we say that God is absolutely sovereign. You're telling me, and you, know, you can read any headline you want to from a newspaper to abuse children uh, to, to all kinds of sexual perversion and on and on and on. You're telling me God's sovereign over that? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He's sovereign over it in a way that I don't exactly understand, but he's sovereign over it. You're telling me I don't have a, a free will? Well, yeah, you do what you want to do, and that's the problem. You do what you want to do. Therein lies the rub. But he's sovereign over us in salvation. You would not bow the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ apart from his initiative on your behalf. And it's something that he determined to do long before all worlds were created. That's simply the language of Scripture. And so he's glorious in his sovereignty and the fact that he sustains the entirety of his creation. Many of you saw the video, or maybe more than one video, that Louis Giglio did a few years ago. And these just spectacular pictures of, of the universe and, and that God is ruling and reigning over all of these things. He's sustaining it. He's making everything work like it ought to work. Amazing, amazing sovereignty. He is glorious in his grace. What does grace mean? It means that God extends favor and blessing to those who deserve wrath and condemnation. That in the place of getting what you what deserve, who will be in hell? Those who deserve it. There will be nobody in hell that does not deserve it. And there will be nobody in heaven who does not deserve it as well. Because what? Or who does deserve it? We're in heaven. Our sins are forgiven because of Christ, not because of anything that we have done. And so he is glorious in this dispensing of favor when it would be justice. It would be right for him to issue condemnation. And so he's glorious in his holiness, his love, his sovereignty, his grace. He's glorious in his wisdom. That he, he knows all things and has known all things since before all worlds were began. 
And then, and, and again, I've only listed six just for the sake of time. Uh, wasn't any, any real, you know, uh, serious kind of, well, what, you know, it's just, okay, here, here's some things I think we ought to, just to call our attention to God's glory and his attributes, but his eternality. We can't imagine that which does not have a beginning or an end. Everything that we know of is finite. God is self-sustaining. He is the uncreated. He has always been and he always will be. That kind of stretches me. I'll just be fair with you. But God is eternal. Before all worlds were created, he existed and he existed forever. And so before we say things like, I don't believe God would be like, first of all, there are realities about God that until we see him, we will not fathom. There are just some things that don't seem to fit together in the way we want to put the puzzle together about God that we go, but you have to say, you know what? I'll, I'll accept the testimony of Scripture as far as I can understand it, and then to the degree I don't understand it, I'll always say it's right. It's always true. And so God is glorious. And not only is He glorious in His, his being and His attributes, He's glorious in all of His activities. We've already mentioned this act of creation. The, the psalmist speaks of the heavens declaring the glories of God. Now, I, I love to be out in nature. You know, I, I'm an old photographer. and In my uh, dreams as, a, a, as kind of an adolescent, teenager, young adult, y'all have to Google this name. Most of you won't know who he is. But I wanted to be Ansel Adams. I wanted to be that guy that traveled out in, you know, the, the out west and, and had the big camera with the bellows on it and you put the cover over your head and you, you spend all day shooting one picture. That's who I wanted to be. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Well, I still haven't grown up, so maybe I still can be. So, you know, maybe there's hope for me yet. But to see these photographs that just just blow you away, I'm I am amazed at God's creation. And it's all His. And I, I mentioned a minute ago these videos that Louis Giglio did. Just the enormity of God's creation. Y'all know in the last few years, one of the, my kind of pleasure readings, I, I've read a lot of, the, uh, a lot of books, uh, biographies, autobiographies, and other types of books about the space program of the 1960s. I mean, one of my first heroes was John Glenn. And uh, to my knowledge, there's not really a good biography or, good auto, or his autobiography. Uh, but he was, he was number one. All the others came after John Glenn. One of the fascinating things about these astronauts, particularly the Apollo astronauts that were able to get 250,000 miles from the earth and see it in its setting, was the words they would use, the, the words de de describing its beauty and, and also the, how, how small it was, but how central it was to their very existence. This little dot that was so far from them what was everything to them? And yet it was only a speck in the entirety of the cosmos. And so, again, God is, God is glorious. And I think one, just one thing about creation, it's size. We don't even know how big it is. We don't even know how big creation. We, we, you know, we're, we're doing well to deal with our universe, much less all the other aspects of creation. And so God is glorious in his creation. He's, he's glorious in his providence. Again, all things under his control. And that it's a glorious thing, his promise to the believer, that, that he's going to work everything for the good 
of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, folks, I've said this many times. doesn't mean everything in life is good. Some things that come to you will be evil. But God will work them in his wisdom and his providence and his sovereignty. He will work them for your good and for his glory. And the thing, the best thing that can ever happen to you is for God to be glorified. No matter the, the pain. And, and I can tell you, life can be painful. Life can be very difficult. But the one who will never leave us or forsake us is working all of these very difficult providences for his own glory and for our good. And then this very, very special act, the work of redemption. That is special. That is for him to be praised. It's to his glory. We've already mentioned this work of election, of him choosing. Now, again, who does he choose? Well, really what he does, he looks and, and looks down and says, these people are going to be very nice. And I think I would like to spend eternity with nice people, which probably would leave me out. Because for some reason, people say I'm not real nice sometimes. I don't get it. I talk to y'all so nicely, and I brag on you, and I encourage you, and y'all say I'm not nice. Very hurtful. Very hurtful. Please get this. God is looking at sinners who deserve hell. That's what they deserve. That's what he's seeing. And he chooses to save some. Okay? And so it, it, it is to his glory. And so he chooses us. So why? So we will believe. So that we'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work in our lives. And we'll praise him. We'll praise him. We'll serve him. And then this, the work of, 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 of God and his son Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Who in the world would come up with a plan of redemption that would involve the killing of his own son? None of us would. Now, I know sometimes you think you want to kill your children, but you wouldn't actually do that. But God offers his son and sends him into a world, and Jesus willingly abandons the glory of the enjoyment of this face-to-face -face eternal relationship with the Father. All he's ever known is this glorious divine approval. That's all he's ever experienced. And he comes to earth to be rejected by us. I mean, God, who is above all, the Heavenly Father, gives him nothing but approval and affirmation because that's what he deserves. And he condescends to enter this, the world of created, fallen image bearers, and we ridicule him, and we reject him. Wow. And then... He learns obedience. Now, I had to learn some obedience as a child. And I didn't like it. I'll just be fair with you. And, you know, un unlike a lot of fathers today, uh, uh, my dad didn't speak softly. He spoke rather loudly at times, and he carried a big stick too. And, um, you know, there were some lessons that I had to learn, and, I, you know, you know me. I'm going to learn them. I'm going to learn them the hard way. And so, again, that, that in the incarnation, Jesus, who never sinned, learned something. I, I, I don't understand. Learned obedience. And then he became this perfect high priest. He understands the human condition. 
He understands what it is to be tempted. Now, he understands it better than you do. Do you know that Jesus understands temptation better than you do? Do you know why? Because when you're tempted, you give in. And Jesus never gave in. And that temp- the pressure of temptation kept going up. But you're not tempted once you give in. And that's us. And so in the incarnation, Jesus displayed the glory of God as one who was full of grace and truth. And then in the, the sacrifice of Jesus, and I, I listed as propitiation, but the atoning work that Jesus satisfied fully the wrath of God. On the cross at Calvary, no one else could have done that. No one else could have suffered in our place. I mean, there have been martyrs down through history for all kinds of causes, including the cause of Christ. And that's glorious and that's a great thing. But none of those deaths could ever atone for sin in any measure. And so it's only in Jesus Christ that sin can be dealt with, that we can be saved through the word of the work of Christ. That's why Paul can write of our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our offenses against God. And then this work of regeneration. One I think I told you last week or maybe the week before. Uh, I'm not real big on being labeled. Uh, but one of the things that I would say is a good label for me, and I, I said last, the other day, I don't like to be called a fundamentalist because that has such terrible connotations down through the last 75 years. I do believe they're fundamentals to the faith. I call them what? Essentials. They're essential things that if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. Okay, So I'm an essentialist. So that is, I believe if you take certain things out of the gospel, it's no longer a gospel. If you add certain things to the gospel, it's no longer a gospel. They're essential things to the gospel. But a second term that you could apply to me is the term monergist. Monergist. Okay? What does that mean? It means God works alone in specifically this act of regeneration. That, you remember, but God? Didn't we look at but God last week? But you were dead in trespasses and sin, but God. But God. But God alone. He worked. Wesley sung about long imprisoned my spirit lay. And then his eye diffused a quickening ray, and he got up, went forth, and followed thee. He lived in the dark. He lived as a spiritually dead individual, and God worked. How did he work? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul says it here in our text, that, that you heard the gospel, and you believed. Regeneration comes to us as that imperishable seed of the new birth. Is it comes to us in the Word of God, and God implants it in our hearts and in our minds, and the Spirit comes and brings life where there's only death. As Ezekiel saw, speak, and these bones shall live. Ezekiel chapter 37. And so, God is glorified in this, this work of regeneration, and He's glorified in our sanctification. Now, I would rather be labeled as anything before being called a fatalist. I'm not a fatalist. I believe in human responsibility. And one of the things in this work of salvation, God works along in our regeneration, 
and we work together with God in our sanctification. Now, to be sure, it is him who wills and works, uh, works in us so that we will work out our salvation before him. I, that's true. But there is an aspect of our participation in our sanctification as we participate in the means of grace, as we study the word of God, as we worship God, as we think about God, as we pray to God. Those things are things that God uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so he is glorified as people that are decidedly unholy become increasingly holy, moving toward the perfection of our salvation, that day that we see him when our sanctification is perfected in glorification. In glorification. We're not glorified now, but we're in a process that we would call sanctification, growing in grace, growing in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God is glorified in the fact that we shall be raised. And one of the things that I like to kind of compare, I, I think the work of regeneration is very much a mini-resurrection. Now, one day... Uh, They'll plant me in the ground. I'll, I hope I'm dead. I plan on being dead when they plant me in the ground. I would like to be dead when they plant me in the ground. Uh, keep that in mind, Ellen, if you, if you would, okay? Um, and my understanding is that Jesus shall appear in the clouds, and a trump shall sound, and you know, then uh, there shall be the, the shout, the cry of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. And that's very analogous to what he did in regeneration. In that we were dead in trespasses and sin. We heard the word of God and he made us alive in Christ Jesus. And one day that work will be perfected in the, this mortal body that, that is corrupting seemingly at an ever-increasing state. Uh, uh, I, you know, again, Aerosmith had it right. Every time I look in the mirror, all the lines on my face getting clearer. You know, that's 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 the reality. Uh, and all the all the hair is getting thinner. I I I, I look in the mirror and I go, Are you kidding me? Mortality. It's tough. It's tough. I've told I've told you before. You know. You, you take ibuprofen before you go mow the yard, and then you take it after you mow the yard. It's mortality. And it really, if, if, if the trajectory were to continue, it would not be a very pleasant thing to remain in this, this body 100 years from now. It would be in such bad shape that all it would be would be misery. But one day... This body, which by the time I die, may not look like much. It may be shriveled up or it may be bloated or who knows what it's going to look like. It ain't going to look good. God is going to send his son. and He is going to speak the word. And this corruptible body is going to put on immortality. And not only will my body be perfected, but, but my mind and my heart, my affections, my will, I will, I will perfectly will only the things that glorify 
God. And I will, I will see my Savior face to face. And, and I will enjoy his, his beauty forever. I, 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 I can stand and, and, and you know, I can, I can sit at the beach or sit up on the mountains and watch sunsets and sunrise. I could do that forever. I love to see the beauty of nature. It just, it just grabs me in a unique way. But one day, we will see Jesus in all of his perfections and all of his glory. And we will enjoy that forever and ever. The, in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, the first question, what's the chief end of man? To know God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy him, to, to gaze upon his beauty and be so captivated that we will be perfectly fulfilled for all of eternity. And so, God is glorious in all of his work of redemption. God is glorious in, in the work of condemnation. Yeah. What does sin and rebellion deserve? If you are perfectly and infinitely holy God, what must you do with that which opposes you? And we get several glimpses in Scripture. The book of Revelation speaks of the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. God is glorified in justice in expressing that wrath eternally against those who have rejected him, who have always rebelled against him. And again, he will be glorified in the consummation of all things. If you will, go, go to your, the last book of the Bible. See, see this because it's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, first of all, beginning in verse 9. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. And we see a kind of a, a verbal description of the perfection that we shall enjoy at the consummation of all things. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then skip down to verse 22. This heavenly Jerusalem descended, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I really don't. But it sure sounds good. It sure sounds like an improvement over the fallen world in which we live today. And so God will be glorified as he brings things to their appropriate end. And he takes this groaning creation and restores it to its pristine perfection for us to enjoy, to inhabit, and to be with him forever. And so God will be glorified forever by the heavenly creatures, uh, the glimpses that we get of heaven occasionally in scriptures uh, typically uh, say something of those gathered around the throne 
of praising him, of declaring his, his greatness. And so they're doing it now, and they will do it forever. But God will be glorified forever by earthly creatures that he has redeemed. And we should do it now. We should do it now. We should glorify God. We should very intentionally have the attitude to God be the glory alone. Most of you know that uh, some of the artists of the and artisans of the Reformation, uh, notably uh, 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 Johann Sebastian Bach, signed his musical works SDG Sola Deo Gloria to God be the glory alone. And so he gives us this privilege and gives us the freedom. To right now, as you're sitting right here, when you go out that door, to live life for the glory of God and to give everything you do. Listen, and you've heard me say this many times. Without Christ, nothing you do has meaning. It's all dust in the wind. Every bit of it. With Christ, everything you do has purpose and meaning and value. How cool is that? How freeing is, is, is that? And so we have the privilege right now to serve him and to, 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 to go out and, and do the things that God has gifted and equipped and called us to do for the glory of God, doing it with excellence because we serve an excellent God. One of the, one of the great inheritances of the Reformation that's often overlooked is kind of this um, tearing down of the wall, the loss of the distinction between uh, the secular and the sacred. That there was kind of this mindset that the only thing you could do to please God was you know, kind of be a monk or do kind of religious stuff and everything else was peripheral to that. And no, 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 no. The reformers came back and said, all that you do, has, when you do it for the glory of God, has value. It's, there's a good in it. Whether you're a, a builder or you're a, a painter, or you're an auto mechanic, or you're a welder, you're a teacher, whatever you find yourself, whatever vocation, that vocation has meaning and purpose and value as you do it to the glory of God. Now, how freeing is that? There's, in fact, I heard it in a television show this week, the old thing, if you Find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think there's some truth uh, to, to that. I, I love what I do. And so I, I, I feel very fulfilled in, in serving God in, in this particular church. But you don't have to be a preacher to know that kind of satisfaction. That God says as you go out into the world and do the things that he's wired you up to do. Now some of y'all have jobs I wouldn't want to do. But you love them. Why? Because we're different. We're different. We're wired up differently. But God says that, that in, your, in the freedom of your redemption, you may go serve me and use that even as your mission field. Your workplace is your mission field. But you can go and you can glorify God in all that you do. Even in your, your, your hobbies, the things you do in your free time, you can glorify God in all those things. All those things, purpose and meaning. And so God will be glorified 
by the heavenly creatures, by the earthly creatures, now and ultimately forevermore. Y'all know how much I love the passage from Revelation 4 and 5. We kind of sung about it in the Revelation song that those of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered before the throne. And they will be singing to the one who redeems people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What a, what a beautiful picture. That, and we will celebrate what God has done forever and ever and ever and ever. And I, be, I believe that one aspect of knowing kind of the joy and the peace of God is to, in some way, through our worship, through our, through our growth in Christ, growth in, in grace, that some of that glorious reality of, of God and His attributes and His works, some of that begins to, to break in on us. That, that we begin to understand, begin to, to see in some way, begin to experience in, in some way all that God is. And we experience it right now in the here and now. And we find great satisfaction, great peace, great purpose, great freedom as we understand that, yes, God demands our all, but he has also given us his all. And we are to praise him and enjoy him both forever and right now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth for your word, uh, for the reality of who you are. And Lord, may, may this reality continue to press upon us, to, to, to break in upon us so that, that again, we would, we would know you and enjoy you both now and forevermore. Again, to you be the glory alone.